This is your coffee break. Hi friends, Sarah here. I am back again this week and I have with me today Philip Kenny, who has recently published a book called The Writer's Crucible, Meditations on Emotion, Being, and Creativity. Uh, he's a psychotherapist and author living in Portland, Oregon. Welcome, Philip. Well, thanks, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you. I'm delighted to have you. Can you give us a little bit of, uh, of your story just to kind of set us up for what we'll be talking about today? Sure. I always tell people that I'm the most unlikely of writers. <laughs> I didn't really even learn to read until I was a senior in high school. And I had a wonderful teacher by the name of Warren Allen Smith who taught us to read deeply into things. He would come into the classroom disguised, for instance, as uh, William Faulkner. He would stagger in <laughs> pretending to be drunk and then give us full range uh, to ask him anything he wanted. So that was a turning point for me. But then, um, and lo and behold, I went on to become an English nature. Uh, <laughs> uh, other than that, I had not done any uh, reading of any depth uh, prior to that. And still, I didn't, um, I didn't begin to write until my mid-40s. And it's, it's a, an odd story. You know, most of the people who I work with or I know, friends of mine who are writers or artists, you know, they were writing as soon as they could pick up a pencil as a mm -hmm. child, it seems. But not me. Um, and in the 90s, I was practicing psychotherapy, and Prozac uh, was coming on the scene, and everyone was talking about it. It was sort of a miracle thing. So uh, I decided to do, uh, having a history of depression in myself and my family, I decided to do an experiment with Prozac. Uh, it didn't work. I didn't <laughs> like it. And so... Uh, I just cold turkey. I just stopped one day. And the next two weeks were the most miserable weeks of my life, I think, uh, detoxing from it. And the strangest thing happened was after about two weeks, uh, on a glorious Saturday morning, I woke up uh, with a, a, certain, a big anxiety attack going. However, the strangest thing was that at the... Uh, end of that, amidst that anxiety attack, there was a poem tagged to it, completely out of nowhere. And I gratefully, I'm so grateful I wrote it down. And it was a terrible poem, but <laughs> it was mine. And it, uh, it began, um, it, it triggered something, it ignited something. And the next thing I knew, I, I became acquainted with um, William Stafford. Uh, Oregon's poet laureate and wonderful person and writer. And I began to read his work and a few of his essays on writing and took a few gems from that, one of which was to write a poem every morning. And so I, I wrote a poem every morning for 10 years. And truly, most of them were as terrible as the first poem <laughs> came along. <laughs> but but, it, but it, it was the process um, was completely enthralling to me because I had I was um, first schooled as a psychotherapist and the first thing you learn as a psychotherapist is to believe in free association and William Stafford's um, primary method was was the same really which was to listen 
and to look for, listen for the little threads that, that you could easily pass over, but to gently um, but resolutely pull on those threads. And uh, that lined up very well with what I, how I do psychotherapy and seemed to be a very direct um, parallel to working with the unconscious. So I began to write. Uh, I wrote, like I said, a poem a day for 10 years, wrote a couple of books of poetry. And then on my 60th birthday, I wrote a list of things that I was sure I could not do and decided to challenge them. The first on the list was playing the piano, and it turns out I was right about that. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot play the piano. My left hand is barely connected to my neurology. But second on the list was writing a novel, and I was sure I could not write a novel. I was sure I could not write dialogue. Uh, but I, uh, I did, and uh, to, lo and behold, uh, you know, about six months to a year later, I had a novel sitting on my table, and uh, so it's been all wonderful since then, and an adventure with writing and, and the unconscious and what I think of as um, the spirituality of it all. And so really, I think my idea about writing is my relationship to it myself is that there's a great deal of mystery involved. And um, that I love, and that brings me back to the writing table every day. Is there ever a day when you don't write a poem, and then how does that affect your day? Or have you been very loyal about writing one every day? I don't write poems any longer. I stopped when I started writing the novel. became a little bit disenchanted with poetry and and for some reason, I think it had served its purpose for me just to believe that I could write and to um, fertilize that field uh, mm. within myself. So I don't write poetry anymore, but I, I try to, uh, you know, I have my off days, et cetera, but I try to write a little something every day. And, and I try to make everything I write good, even my text messages to my boys. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them grammatically correct and use capital letters yeah. and all that stuff. Oh, I appreciate that so much. Um, you mentioned that you didn't really learn to read until you were a senior in high school. Um, do you mean read deeply or do you mean just even read at all? Read deeply. You know, I was uh, the first half of my uh, childhood, or I was brought. I was raised in Ohio in the, in the fifties, and it was post-war, World War II, post-depression culture, dominated by denial and uh, intent on being normal. I, I think of it as mm. abnormally normal. And so you weren't supposed to think deeply. You weren't supposed to uh, question. So I read The Hardy Boys and stuff like that, but I didn't really read. You know, I didn't really look into the depths of what... Uh, and I didn't read books of substance until Warren Allen Smith uh, introduced us to Shakespeare mm. and Faulkner. <laughs> and that was a revelation. It was, a, it was really counterculture to what I had known. That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. I an major, and next thing I know, I was reading the Russians. And <laughs> like a good Lutheran boy, I became obsessed with crime and punishment. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So you were an English major. What made you then turn to psychotherapy? Well, uh, you know, I 
I had moved in uh, eighth grade from uh, Ohio. My father was uh, promoted, and we moved to New York. So it became this really uh, this bipolar existence, and I was captivated by the by unconsciously really by the art world and the culture of New York. And um, so as I developed, uh, there was a tremendous conflict in me uh, uh, between those two poles and my, you know, my allegiance really to the family and Ohio culture versus my strong attraction to New York culture. And and I was reading a, number, a lot of uh, psychological literature. Herman Hesse was very popular at the time, Dostoevsky. And uh, the short story is I cracked up around 25 or 26. I went into therapy, and the, I was living on the West Coast by that time. And uh, therapy uh, in the West Coast in the mid-70s was really a, a new a revival of a religion almost hmm. very popular very dynamic and, and uh so i became fascinated by it and went back to graduate school and began to work so with psychotherapy um can you give just for maybe listeners who aren't familiar with the term can you give us a little run through of what that means i'll try <laughs> <laughs> it means so many things it's hard to condense but well, let me put it in the context of the book, because in the book I talk about, uh, I believe in uh, therapy, I believe in writing, I believe in spiritual practices. And with therapy, you know, people come to therapy, by and large, I think, with two things. One, uh, they come with a history, many of whom includes uh, traumas of one sort or another. But they also come, I found in almost epidemic numbers, with an internal sense of not being good enough, which is really an existential problem, and I, I think a, a spiritual problem. So for me, therapy and creativity and spirituality are not separate things or separate disciplines. To me, they're one, uh, they're woven together as different aspects of one tremendous uh, force moving through us and through our lives. But therapy is a process, by and large, of trying to help people live into their and accept their emotional world. For some people, they have to learn to feel all over again because they can't feel. For others, they are emotionally flooded and spend a great deal of time just trying to manage their vulnerability and distance from the feelings. So you spend a lot of time trying to help people be connected to their inner world, to their emotional world. And you also try to help them understand some of the situations of their life that have predisposed them to feel certain ways about themselves, for instance, to doubt themselves or to um, expect certain things of life, all of which can be very traumatic for problematic for writers who can who encounter so many experiences of rejection and uh, can be of course the writing process is fabulous and fascinating in many respects but also troubling and difficult in others so uh, some of these psychological and emotional um, leftovers people bring can compound uh, the difficulties uh, that are inherent to you know, creating. 
sort of these emotional struggles that writers encounter in their work, it seems um, almost like a vicious cycle. So maybe, you know, you're writing, you're struggling emotionally, you think you're not good enough. And then maybe is the answer to write more? Um, Tell me a little bit more about sort of these emotional struggles that writers can face, and then um, what we can sort of do to begin to alleviate them. Yes, well, that's just it. I mean, sometimes you have to wonder why do people write at all? (laughs) You're asking for it, right? (laughs) You can count on multiple rejections. You can count on crappy days when you tell yourself, I just suck, I can't write. Who am I kidding? Why am I doing this? You think about packing up your bags and, you know, doing something else, getting a day job or what have you. So it's, it's very difficult. And, uh, I work with lots of writers and artists who struggle with this. And so in the book, um, one thing I talk about is just the difficulty of that, just to, to, to normalize that. There's nothing wrong with you when you, by encountering this, that this is part of the terrain, but it's the terrain itself can be turbulent and difficult. Um, one of my favorite lines from the book isn't mine. It's from Flannery O'Connor. She wrote, writing a novel is a terrible experience during which the hair often falls out and the teeth decay. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I didn't want to Skype today. I didn't want to see her with me with no hair. And no Both teeth. of us with our missing hair and decayed teeth. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's true. And um, so... In the book, I've identified something called the self-project, which is, you know, akin to what we commonly think of ego, but I think is a little more complex than ego because it it involves all the strategies and um, maneuvers we do to try to enhance our sense of self and try to feel good enough and um, that often um, compounds the difficulty of the work because seems like the, to me, anyway, the way I think about it, the difficulty of the work, or where it's the work go well, um, is to get out of our own way. And so much of the time we're in our own way, either trying to be cle- too clever, trying too hard, uh, grinding our teeth, trying to write the great novel, instead of um, working with uh, inspiration of the moment and letting our talent uh, be uh, what it may be at, the, at that time. Uh, so, you know, when I was coaching Little League Baseball, my boys, when they were young, and, um, and before every game I said to the, the kids, I said, uh, you know, ten, what's, a, what's a hitter's worst enemy? <laughs> and they got uh, very familiar with this, and they would say, Tension! Tension is the hitter's worst enemy because the more you tighten your hands around that baseball bat, the harder your time you're going to have to hit. And it's, I think it's true with writing. Mm-hmm. You know, with writing and making art, constriction is a writer's worst enemy. We're trying too hard. Mm-hmm. And to, make, to say it simply, so it's the problem of getting out of your way. How do you get out of your way? Well, uh, one thing I like to do is uh, step back a little and and think of little things. You know, when an artist 
um, starts to draw. They just start making little marks on the page. And I think it's good for writers to appreciate those little marks, to appreciate just a few words that go together well, or a sentence, and not think too big, not be too grandiose. Uh, the other thing I like to do is just pa to have pauses, what I think of as sacred pauses, where even before I start writing, I just try to remember that this is sacred business. Mm -hmm. I try to remember my ancestry with Tolstoy or Virginia Woolf or whomever. And I also take seriously the dedication at the beginning of the book, where I, I think about the people I've dedicated the book to, or maybe perhaps other people are important in my life at that time, and, and make a conscious effort to dedicate the work to them. So it's another way to get out of the way, to make it not so much self-project involved, not about me or proving myself, but about listening and listening to the muse and appreciating just the little things that come up. I've been thinking a lot lately about expectations, and you mentioned the word expectations earlier on in our conversation today. And you, you sort of mentioned, you know, we need to get out of our own way. We have these, this grandiose expectation. So, um, and I know I've been through this as well. And so this is what I was thinking about while you were talking is sitting down and expecting that, you know, very unreasonably, by the end of the day, I will have hammered out a masterpiece, you know, that's the equivalent of the old man in the sea or great expectations or um, why, why do we expect these unrealistic things of ourselves? <laughs> I know, it's a great question, isn't it? Uh, why do we? Well, I think, for one thing, that there's two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, we have this tremendous longing Tremendous long. We feel touched by what I think of as the creative impulse. Mm -hmm. We feel touched by it, and we it resonates through our whole being, and in, to express something that does justice to that creative mystery. Mm -hmm. and we want, we yearn so much to to give voice to that, and of course, um, we always fall short, which is part of the emotional struggle. Yeah. We never quite get there, but, but the yearning is there. The longing is there. And that's a beautiful, I think, helpful part, too. The problem is that that can get, um, that can bleed over into the self-project so that whatever doubts we have about ourselves and, and, uh, or feel we're deficient in this way or that way or inadequate can usurp that and turn it into an expectation or a desire for something that will uh, validate us in a way that maybe we don't otherwise feel, so that it becomes loaded. It becomes so charged in, with our own needs. Um, but really, when you talk to writers and artists, um, I think eight out of 10 of them will say, when it's working, when you're in the groove, when you're in the flow, it's you and it's not you. There is a way in which you kind of disappear a bit. And that force, that ineffable something, the same thing that brings you ideas unbidden in the middle of the night, um, it takes over. And, and you're kind of a facilitator. Mm -hmm. There's less ego involved and less self 
um, you know, promotion, so to speak. So I think my favorite line from the book in, in this regard is when I said something like, we get into trouble when the strivings of the self-project are mistaken for the promptings of the muse. So it's very, it's very good to um, practice meditation, mindfulness, or just to be know yourself, know your vulnerabilities, know the vulnerabilities that can make you grab onto big, great expectations and miss or distort the often very subtle murmurings of the muse. I kind of feel like um, you've solved all of writerdom's problems ever, <laughs> like <laughs> getting out of our own way, uh, sort of banishing that ego, that self-project. Well, that's quite a compliment. So I guess one thing that writers struggle with would be diminishing that ego. And you said, um, you know, you can work on that with meditation and mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Is that just a lifelong struggle we'll have to go through? Well, I'm glad you said that because I really think it is. I think it's a lifelong um, endeavor, a lifelong struggle, or what I think of it as developing a, an ongoing relationship with your inner world and with your emotional life. And there's too much, in my mind, too much talk in our culture. It's very too simplistic an approach to um kind of a one and done approach. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna decide not to do that. There's too much emphasis or there's an over idealization of choice. Yes, of course choice is crucial, but but these are ongoing this um challenges and the psyche is so vast and so complicated that it isn't a matter of you know being done with it or erasing some of these emotional problems. It's a matter of how you relate to them. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of being able to identify them as coming from what I call the anxious brain or the shame brain, and that they're not true. The biggest example of this is I talked a lot about in the book is the problem of shame. Of course, many people um, grow up and if they've experienced trauma or, of, of any particular sort, uh, they come away feeling a, a great deal of shame. Um, who was it the other day? We were interviewing, I think, Albert, is it De Silva? Mm, yes, yes. So, so he spoke about his the trauma of his um, uh, childhood, with the alcoholism, etc. And how then that trauma was continued on into his adultness before he... Uh, got free of it and began to write. It was a great interview, by the way. Thank you. And uh, so this shame is a particularly nasty, <laughs> difficult emotion. And it, it's, it, tends to, it tends to be like blueberry stains on a white t-shirt. You know? <laughs> it's tough to get it out. You don't really get it out. But you can learn to um, feel it because part of the problem with shame is that it uh, it, in all the efforts to get away from it, you compound it, you empower it. It's like the Chinese finger puzzles. The more you try to twist mm -hmm. your way out, the tighter grip it's got. And so shame um, is something that, sadly, a number of people, I think particularly my generation and 
many Americans growing up in a, in a hyper-capitalist society uh, suffer from. Not, and that, in essence, is this internal narrative of not being good enough. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot in the book about uh, dealing with shame, learning to recognize it, learning to challenge it, learning to rewrite your internal narrative, because the, the confounding thing about this good, not good enough uh, narrative is how simple it is, how rigid and how terribly simple and how helpless many you know, competent, proactive people feel when uh, bombarded with it. And so I talk about how to, how to uh, face the shame, how to revise, that's a writer's best tool, right? How to revise the internal narrative and how to connect with the deeper self. That's where the spirituality of it comes in. I think to try how to connect with being, which is really the gateway to recognizing your own basic goodness and experiencing uh, the uh, beauty of being, which immediately dispels the notion of not being good enough. As soon as you connect with that, internal place the matter the idea of not being good enough is just obviously uh, a foolish notion so yeah what do you think about comparison um i know that it's very easy for us to try and solve some of these lifelong emotional struggles um you talked a little bit about dealing with shame and the ego as being not a one and done thing it's not something that we can just say well i've solved that problem on to the next thing What about people who we compare ourselves to maybe who say like, oh, yeah, I solved that a long time ago, because there are people who say that there's people who say like, oh, I've lost weight and I feel great and I never have to worry about that again. Um, Are they deluding themselves? Are they deluding everyone? And should we sort of ignore people who feel like or who represent themselves as having everything figured out, solved and put together? Well, I think we should have a healthy skepticism of that, (laughs) frankly. I understand it. I've done it many times myself, but I've I've never known it to really uh, last. You know, people usually end up with some sort of disappointment. And, you know, as William Stafford, our beloved poet, said, uh, you know, the darkness around us is deep. It's easy to delude ourselves. Mm. It's easy to fool ourselves. And partly, you know, that's not because we're bad. It's because some of these, the alternatives, some of these feelings and, and states of con- uh, uh, are so um, are so painful. So, if you can see popular culture taking over some of these things, uh, for instance, letting go. I talk a lot about letting go, or, or basically, I call it surrender in the best sense of the term. Um, in the book, because uh, many of these things have been adopted by popular culture and oversimplified. And mm-hmm. So letting go <clears throat> has become, uh, you know, a bit of a club. <laughs> What's uh-huh. wrong with you? You can't let go of that. You know? I mean, my brother died of cancer, and two months later, people were looking at me like, can't you get over that? What's, oh my what's that expression? Get over it. So comparison, you know, I think it's um, that's a real uh, trap of the mind, and usually of the self-project. It doesn't, it's not sustainable. It really takes an ongoing relationship. And comparison, it really comes as a derivative of shame, or shame's uh, first cousin, which is envy. 
And you know, you you uh, people tell me all sorts of things. I don't know if they talk about it in their in their writing groups, but they sure talk to me about it in our psychotherapy sessions. And, <laughs> you know, writing groups and uh, conferences, uh, writers conferences are notorious for people comparing themselves. Mm. You know, Bob Dylan said, "My thought dreams could be seen." You'd probably put my head in a guillotine. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. People suffer, and envy is particularly toxic when people compare themselves ruthlessly. You should see it in Portland. In Portland, we're home to uh, Cheryl Strayed, who uh, is an incredible person and writer. She hit the big time. She had the perfect book at the perfect time when she wrote Wild. Well, I mean, she hit she the total success you know, um, selling books, making the movie. And I'll tell you, you can't believe how many people are so envious of Cheryl, because so many people long for that and want that. And But the comparisons, you know, they just eat away at you. And the beauty of writing and the mystery of writing, I think, is that it's so democratic, it's so universal, it touches, it inspires so many people. And, and it's not just writing. I mean, I, I have a couple of friends who are hounding me to stop pigeonholing the book is about writers because it's really about artists and anyone who has a creative inspiration or the inclination that way because you know, we're touched by this ineffable uh, mysterious uh, creative impulse and how it is translated through our own history and experience and imagination is and that relationship between the two is a marvel so I think it's ours, but not all ours. Mm-hmm. And that's liberating. That takes some of the pressure off. Um, and, and it hopefully, the more you meditate and you tap into that spiritual force, you realize that it's comparisons, you know, are, are just faulty. They, they're, way, they, they're, they're wayward. They take you away from the, yourself and from the... You're a creative source, they don't bring you closer. So it helps to recognize them and lay them down as best you can. Absolutely. I've heard before, um, and people have told me this before, that I should be meditating. Um, what does that look like as a daily practice? Is that setting aside three minutes a day, three hours a day? I mean, what does beginning a meditating practice look like? Right. Well, the uh, you can it goes in all sorts of forms. I I know people who do meditate for two hours or more a day. I know people who meditate for five minutes a day. Some people I suggest when they're sitting in the parking lot waiting for their partner to come out of the store or something that they just close their eyes and meditate. Others I recommend if they're working a stressful job that they pause you know once an hour and meditate for a minute or breathe deep for a minute. So it comes in lots of forms and there's abundant, excuse me, podcasts now that speak to um, the meditation in a number of ways, including uh, guided meditations, which are quite helpful for beginners. The, the real, so you can, it, it doesn't really matter how long you meditate. What matters, I think, is that you uh, spend a little time every day 
sitting with yourself and doing nothing and just being with yourself. Let me just tell you one thing that you know, J.D. Salinger said. Yeah. When he was writing, he said it took him an hour every day, every, every day beginning his writing, to be honest with himself. <laughs> now, I just think that is the most beautiful thing. And that's really a meditation, is to, be, to connect with yourself. To be to be honest with yourself and to recognize yourself. So many people have artists have a hard time recognizing themselves, and uh, their self perception is very distorted. It's like a Francis Bacon painting or something. Meditation is to sit with yourself and to sit. And there's different kinds of meditation, like mindfulness meditation, which is very popular now, uh, helps people really uh, become more aware of the waywardness and the workings of their minds and the kind of helter-skelter process of thinking and fantasy and memory that is really out of control in most people's minds. It helps appreciate that, but it also helps them differentiate between mind chatter and something else, which is a, a sense of presence, a sense of being, a sense of going on being. And that's what I love in meditation. I used to meditate for an hour a day, but I got too addicted to it. <laughs> I'd, I'd leave, I'd have blissful meditations and I'd walk out of the meditation room and be pissed off because <laughs> life was so uncooperative. <laughs> so now I meditate for 20 minutes and it's basically just that Salinger thing to be, to check in with myself, to be and sit with just the basic sense of presence and feel the basic goodness of existence and of being and, and differentiate it from some of the usual uh, emotional and psychological uh, uh, things that are, you know, bouncing around my mind. I think it's great. I often keep a pad next to my, next to me when I meditate, like, and because uh, you'd be amazed how many writing problems I solve in meditation. <laughs> Not because I'm grunting and trying to figure them out, but because there's a, the, a release of constriction that allows the, the flow to happen from the unconscious and from the creative source. So I think it's good for people. I recommend it. I recommend therapy. I recommend you know, writing practice, and I recommend uh, some sort of spiritual practice, whether it's meditation or yoga, or running, or absolutely. You can't see me right now, but I, I have this um, this big stupid smile on my face. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds just so beautiful and so restful, and I think this is the emphasis that I needed to sort of. Uh, get myself into doing a practice like this. And I'm certain that many listeners out there today are are feeling the same thing. So gosh, thank you for sharing these, great. these insights with us. This is so amazing. I have a number of uh, you know, little experiments in meditation that I've inserted in the book. So if anybody wants to take a, take a look at it, there are prompts and, and ways of uh, to practice this stuff and to, to, practice meditating. And that was my next question for you is if people are interested in learning more about you and picking up your book, what do they do and where do they go? You can pick up the book through Barnes and Noble on their website. You can also order it through Amazon, but I'm encouraging people not to, and I probably shouldn't get into the <laughs> nasty 
reasons for that, but I don't. Some of the things that they're doing to indie writers that are not good. If you're in Portland, you can get it at Broadway Books. Uh, you can learn more about me on my website, which is Philip with one L. Oh, what is my website? Gee, I'm I have it in front of me. It is Philip with one L hyphen Kenny K E N N E Y dot com. Um, yeah, that's it. Yes, yes. And I will have a link to that and to your book in the show notes for today's episode. And then just again, as a reminder, the book's name is The Writer's Crucible, Meditations on Emotion, Being, and Creativity. Good. So yes, yes, I've, I've got you there. I've got you. <laughs> Good. Well, this was fun. Oh, Philip, thank, thank you. Gosh, yes. I appreciate the, I've taken with the, the joy and the intelligence you bring to your interview, Sarah, and I'm glad to be part of it. Thank you so much for, for reaching out and helping uh, and writing this book. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.